Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. In this episode, we are going to be talking about dynamic duos. Are we talking about Batman and Robin? No! <laughs> we talking about Will Scarlet and Robin Hood? No! Not those dynamic duos. Talking musically dynamic duos. And most people would think that, uh, if you know me, that you know I'm a saxophone player, and so I would probably be talking about front horn lines, like trumpet and sax. No, no. We're going to give the rhythm section a little love today. So what we're going to be talking about is great dynamic duos between drums and bass. That's right. A few podcast episodes ago, many podcast episodes ago, we did a episode, an episode entitled um, Drummerless you know, uh, trios or drummerless outfits in jazz. And I w- rather than just do like an episode that only focuses on drummers, I figure, hey, you know what? Let's give the bass some love. Because the basses hardly ever get any love anyway. Most people talk during the bass solo. Don't do that, by the way. Public service announcement. Do not talk during the bass solo. They're just as important. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. I wanted to not kill two birds with one stone, but spotlight two important parts of the heartbeat of a jazz group in the rhythm section, the drummer and the bass. And throughout the history of recorded jazz, there has been a lot of great dynamic duos or just improvisatory music. So you're going to hear a wide range from these 12. And believe me, they are some giants in their field. Okay. So sit back, relax, grab a drink, and listen to the absolute empathy of these great basses and drummers working together in a very dynamic situation. So here's Dynamic Duos on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Enjoy.
Yes, 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 yes. Three great piano trios in that set. We're not going to stick with just piano trios to focus on some of these dynamic duos between drums and bass because that's our focus of this episode. But in that particular one, I wanted to lump three piano trios, legendary piano trios together. And they all happen to be live, which I think is really cool. Because it, there's no overdubbing. There's no, hey, let's work that out, this little thing that we have together between the drum and the bass. And let's let's re-record that or let's, you know, dub it in or let's edit it. You know, no. For live performances, you really get undiluted, unfiltered, true empathy and interplay between the drum and the bass. Sharing a mind. And... It's worth it to say that in the context of a piano trio, a jazz piano trio, that it's really a a three-way sharing of the brain because it is truly a three-pronged unit when you have a piano trio. Uh, So that is the first thing I'd like to say. Uh, The second thing um, is I want to go through what we just heard. So the very first song that we heard in that set to start off this episode was a tune called Thags Dance. T-H-A-G-S. Thag. Thags Dance, which is which was performed by none other than the great Oscar Peterson trio, uh, which featured the great Oscar Peterson on piano, Ray Brown on, bra- on bass, and Ed Thigpen on drums, recorded live at the London House in Chicago, July 1961, and it comes off the Verve album, The Sound of the Trio. And just some fantastic work going on uh, with Ray Brown and Ed Thigpen, and you just have to love love that that bass solo. Uh, Then, in the spirit of not going chronologically, we heard from the Brad Meldow Trio live, and it comes from their two-CD set, Brad Meldow Trio Live, uh, which of course is Brad Meldow on the piano, Larry Grenadier on the bass, and Jeff Ballard on the drums, recorded live at the Village Vanguard on October 11th through the 15th, 2006. And that was the lengthy track in the middle there. Uh, none other than... Black Hole Sun. Yeah, that same Black Hole Sun. The Soundgarden song, Black Hole Sun, written by Chris Cornell. Amidst a bunch of other things, that's what I really love about Meldow, is that if it's just good music and it's got a strong melody, 
he's for it. Because on this two-CD set, you have everything from Jimmy Heath's CTA to Coltrane's Countdown to standards like The Very Thought of You and More Than You Know alongside original compositions of Mel Dow's like Buddha Realm, Fit Cat, Secret Beach, B-Flat Waltz, Ruby's Rub. But then you also have songs like Wonderwall that was made famous by Oasis and Black Hole Sun made famous by Soundgarden. And it all fits together. That's the majesty of it. It all works. And what I really wanted to point out in this example of a dynamic duo between Larry Grenadier and Jeff Ballard is that there's a point in time, of course, you know, first of all, let, let's break this down. Meldow states the melody on the piano very languidly. He, he really takes his time with it. It's very rubato-esque, you know. But then the melody goes to the bass, and all of a sudden it, it, it kind of takes a different form. It's still similar, it, but it's different. It's got a little bit more warmth to it. Then, as the tune progresses, and it is a very long tune, Meldow takes, uh, for lack of a better term, a meandering kind of free-style kind of solo, loosely kind of on the changes, very within the context of a, of a Jarrett-esque kind of sort of thing. And amidst that, rather than just dropping out and let Brad do his own thing, you kind of, that's when, that's when you start to really hear the magic of this dynamic duo between Larry Grenadier and Jeff Ballard. They, they kind of sync together and provide the perfect canvas, the perfect backdrop, the perfect support system for a pianist like Meldow to do his thing without just them dropping out in the solo spotlight completely on him. Everybody knows who's listening that it's definitively a piano solo at that point, but you have this really cool duo thing going on very empathetically between the drummer and the bass that acts as a perfect foil to the style of soloing that Meldow's doing. I, I know I'm getting really deep in the weeds here, but for the casual listener, but there is an art to that sort of thing. And not a lot of people really tackle even just talking about it on a surface level. So that's what I think is really important to to take note of um, in this particular example of a piano trio. So there you go. And for the third song, it's another live example, but it's it's one of the the great masters of, uh, of piano trios, and that's pianist Bill Evans. This is not the Evans-LaFaro Emotion uh, trio. I did seriously consider that one. But seeing that the emphasis of this episode was dynamic duos between drum and bass, I elected to after deep consideration, not going with the Bill Evans, Scott LaFaro, Paul Motion trio because there seemed to be more of a duo element between Bill Evans and Scott LaFaro as opposed to Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion. Not saying that there wasn't any, but it 
the, the emphasis seemed to be more on the piano and bass as a duo in that context, which goes against kind of what I'm trying to do here because I'm trying to really focus on the spotlight of bass and drums interlocking together. So that's why I liked it to go with the tune Nardis from Bill Evans Live at the Montreux Jazz Festival uh, from 1968. And that featured Bill Evans on piano with the bassist Eddie Gomez and the drummer Jack Dijonette. Yes. So Jack and Eddie have a lot of great things going on here, and Nardis is one of those perfect vehicles for Bill Evans to really express himself because he's been playing it quite a long time at that point. I think that Nardis first came up either on the Explorations album or How My Heart Sings. I can't remember without looking it up. But the point is, is that Bill has been playing this tune for quite a long time. Eddie joined in to the trio before Jack did, and then Jack was the, the third you know, member to join out of this particular trio. And for the longest time, this was really the only uh, album featuring this particular piano trio of Bill Evans, Eddie Gomez, and Jack DeJanette until Zeb Feldman and all those great guys at Elemen- Elemental and, and, and all those, you know, um, earth, you know, archaeological jazz, if you will, you know, digging up and unearthing all these great recordings that we have now have a lot more examples of Bill, Eddie, and Jack playing together. And the sound is phenomenal. If you haven't checked out those albums as well, do so. But it all went back to this first. You know, this was the most commercially available recording and it's the Verve album, Bill Evans at the Montreux Jazz Festival. And it's one of my, still one of my favorites. And the interplay between these three is really something to be said. I mean, Bill was the elder statesman between the three of them. But it was his ship. And there's no denying that. There's no doubting that once you hear Nardis, which we closed out that set with, that Bill is in total control. But... You want to talk about a perfectly fine, well-oiled machine between what Jack DeJanette is rhythmically putting down and what Eddie Gomez is complimenting Jack plus complimenting Bill Evans. You know, that is the hardest part of being a bassist is that you have to harmonically lock up with what a soloist or in this context a pianist is doing and you rhythmically have to lock up with what the drummer is doing, plus compliment the pianist. So the hardest job, if you ask me, is Eddie, is Eddie Gomez's job as the bassist. And Jack DeJanette and Bill Evans are just masters of that. And it's worth saying that Eddie Gomez is quite the master to, to make all of these songs really sing. Uh, whether that's Someday My Prince Will Come, uh, Sleeping Bee, quiet, uh, yeah, walking up, or even something like Nardis. It's just, it's phenomenal. So, if you haven't checked out that album, please do so. You will not regret it. And if you're trying to jot all this down, do not worry about that. We actually have all that work finished and done for you. All you have to do is go to our website. Uh, if you're on your computer, just go to the website. If you're on your phone, listening to this. 
it's mobile friendly as well. So just go to Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z podcast.wordpress.com. And there you can find all of the artists, the song titles, and the album artwork in the order in which we play them. So that way you know exactly what to either go to your local record store and dig around or order or download, whatever you use your, your method of listening to jazz. And don't forget that at the top of the page you can click contact and it will write an email to us with a blank box that you just write your email and we will respond back. We love hearing from our listeners. So tell us what you think about this dynamic duo episode. Furthermore, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, you name it. We are there. So if you know someone who would really dig this kind of music, please pass it along to them. Remember, we're not making a dime off this. This is truly a labor of love, and we actually have to pay in order to upload this to our platform so that it, you know it goes out to all these other platforms. So... Feel free to leave us a, a positive review um, wherever you find your podcast, and we would love it. And if you'd like to write to us, we'd love to hear from you. So enough talking from me. Let's get to our next set of great music focusing on dynamic duos, great bassists and drummers in jazz here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
so, so special. Oh, man. That is one of my favorite groups, one of my favorite bassists, and one of my favorite albums. Um, yeah, so let's start digging in. The drummer, the one and only Paul Motion. Yeah, I mentioned him in the last set break, and that was kind of a, a foreshadowing, if you will. The bassist, the so, so special and spectacular Charlie Hayden. He is probably my favorite bassist of all, and I love some bass players. I really do. I love Dave Holland. I love Scott LaFaro. I love Eddie Gomez. uh, But Charlie Hayden is probably my favorite. I love his earthy sound. And this is a perfect um, encapsulation of the individual expression and also the duality of being a dynamic duo with Paul Motion. Before we get into that, the tenor saxophonist was none other than the great Dewey Redman, and the leader of the group was pianist Keith Jarrett. This was Keith Jarrett's American Quartet. At the same time, he had another quartet called the European Quartet, um, which was... Jan Christensen, Pally Danielson, and Jan Garberek, I believe. Yeah. And uh, they had a host of great recordings on ECM, such as Belonging and Nude Ants and, yeah, so many, My Song, so many, many really wonderful uh, compositions and, and, and tunes with Keith. But I love the American Quartet, too. And this was a live recording. This this album, first of all, is called Fort Yawa. Uh, Y-A-W-U-H. And it was recorded live at the Village Vanguard yet again. Yeah, we heard from the Village Vanguard with the Brad Meldow Trio. But this is live at the Village Vanguard, February 24th, 1973. And the tune was called The Drums. Yeah, D-E, Duh, Drums. Duh, Drums. And again, it was a a, a lengthier kind of tune, but within that context, you you had so many iconic things. First of all, you had the Jarrett drone that Jarrett loves to do in many of his performances where he just grooves on a drone for forever. A lot of people have compared that intro drone to Proud Mary. I don't know about that. Like the I can Tina Turner Proud Mary. But I can certainly see where they're coming from on a very surface value. But furthermore, as the tune develops, it that it's worth noting that that is one of the hardest things to do is keep endurance without sacrificing time. And what I mean by that is that it's a really tough challenge for musicians. You have to be a pro, and obviously Hayden and Motion are a pro. Uh, But it's a really tough challenge to keep a drone going for a very long extended period of time without losing the beat. And by that I mean you, you, you stay constant. You don't rush and you don't drag due to compensating for that endurance so it's a really tough assignment for a rhythm section player but 
once again, Hayden in, in motion to the rescue. And then this thing happens after the, the Jarrett drone on this groove is bam. It goes into this kind of shuffle time thing when Dewey Redmond comes in and almost instantaneously, it's like someone flicked a switch with Charlie Hayden and Paul motion. And they go, okay, this is what we're doing. You know, and it just grooves. I mean, it's two different grooves, but it's just like someone just clicked a different page or turned on a light in, in a room or, you know, threw open the curtains. It's just, okay. That's what we're doing now. And not that one's better than the other. It's just that, that they seamlessly just go into each other, which is just fantastic. And then at the end of the song, we heard Charlie Hayden just by himself with like the groove of the drums and percussion. By the way, the, the percussion player was Danny Johnson, but Paul Motion is doing a lot of that drums and percussion together. That's That should be noted and said for both of those instances. But you really get to hear the, the interplay between Motion and Hayden there at the very end, and I just absolutely love it. And Charlie Hayden is absolutely putting his mastery on display because you hear this groove and these ideas coming from his bass and then he'll do that half-step shift thing that you hear a lot of saxophone players do and it's just fantastic and I, I love it i love it i love it and hopefully you did too so there you go before that we had one of my favorite dynamic duos in George Porter Jr. on the bass, Zigaboo Modalest on the drums. They're both living legends. And yes, they are part of the Funky Fab Four from New Orleans. Talking about the meters, baby. Yeah, Papa Funk himself, Art Neville on the organ, Leo Nocentelli on the guitar. And our dynamic duo of George Porter Jr. on the bass and Zigaboo Modalist on the drums. We heard the iconic, funky, not funky, funky, Sissy Strut from their self-entitled album, The Meters. Yeah. I mean, this this was, this goes beyond just funk music. This, this was a, a real inspiration for, for a lot of jazz cats because you got to understand that this is instrumental funk music, right? And even the great Grant Green on his Blue Note album Carrying On from like 1970, just or 1969, the same year that this album came out by the Meters, he covered Ease Back, which is one of the tracks on this album. The great organist Big John Patton even covered Sissy Strut, the song that we heard in the middle there. So the meters are definitively an inspiration to jazz cats. So don't think that I'm like pulling a fast one on you. There are some deep connections and there's some great solos and funkiness going on. But that groove, you have to understand, this is one of the most underrated unsung hero groups of all time. And those who are real music musicians knew it. Paul McCartney knew it. The Rolling Stones knew it. All these, all these cats knew it. The jazz cats heard that groove, heard those melodies, and went, oh my God, there is something amazing 
and that. But not a lot of people did. So, and now Papa Funk has left us. You know, he passed away a few years ago. So, that's the thing, you know. It is it is funknicity in its highest form. Ain't no doubt about it. It's desitively Bonnaroo. Um, but yeah, that groove that just locks between the bass and drums is just absolutely killing. And I would even go so far as to say that Zigaboo Modalest's grooves in heavily influenced Idris Muhammad's grooves that he would later play on for some of them Blue Note records with Grant Green and Lou Donaldson and all them cats, you know. I, I, I would, yeah, Lonnie Smith too. So I think there was a lot of sharing of groove and ideas going on back and forth between these records. But yeah, you cannot absolutely deny the the empathy between the whole group, but specifically between the drum and the bass with the meters because George Porter Jr. is just laying down these big fat bass lines full of funk and then you've got Zigaboo just absolutely drilling out some of the best grooves known to man alright so that was the middle song on the set and then we started off with one of my absolute favorite quartets John Zorn's Masada yes this is his group that really heralded what he called radical Jewish culture music and with DIW records, he went into the studio with a cordless quartet and produced 10, 10 studio albums. Um, all the compositions are by John Zorn, and we heard the track Hazor, and that comes from uh, volume three, Gimel, from the 10 volume series and of course John Zorn was on alto sax the great Dave Douglas was on trumpet but the dynamic duo here and I'm lucky to say that I have seen them perform live was Greg Cohen on the bass and Joey Barron on the drums and those two live and in studio it doesn't matter they share a brain and they are completely completely in sync there are certain things that greg cohen will set up and joey barron will exactly hit the like a home run right there it's like the ball right down the middle of the plate and there's other things where joey barron will set up something rhythmically that accentuates and makes greg cohen's bass lines sound more informed more like it'll set it up to like a downbeat will like have a lot of extra weight and it takes a really special drummer to do that, knowing the tendency so well of the bass player. And there is no doubt that Joey Barron and Greg Cohen have worked for decades together now. But at this point, this was only volume three of ten, so it was still relatively new in the studio. And this was the early 90s, so... I'm trying to look at the date here, but I know it's like 93 or 94. It could even be 95. Yeah, 1994. Um, but yeah, and it's it's only grown in their empathy together. So there's no doubt that they are one of the, the top dynamic duos in, in all of improvisational music. 
So hopefully you enjoyed that as well from John Zorn's Masada. Uh, so yeah, Masada Quartet, The Meters, Keith Jarrett's American Quartet. That's crazy, right? Well, we did trios last go-round, so we wanted to make sure that we did some quartet work too. We're not just sticking with the trio format. And hopefully you dug some of those groovy songs as well. All right, so we got two more sets coming at you. Don't forget... Check out our website if you want all the info, track info, album art info, and artist info. It's Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z Podcast.wordpress.com. And you can find out that info there. But enough from me. Let's get to our next set of dynamic duo music here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. 
can take any parts of that you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't take any part of that that you want. So, of course, that is the jazz standard Footprints, which is a composition by the late, great Wayne Shorter, who was featured there on the tenor sax alongside Herbie Hancock on the piano, the leader of the, of the quintet, Miles Davis, on the trumpet, and our dynamic duo featured in this set, which is none other than the great Tony Williams on the drums and hashtag Planet Elegance, Mr. Bowtie, Ron Carter on the bass. And it's important to note, let, let, let's talk a minute there, because a lot of people <clears throat> may say, well, why did you choose Footprints? Isn't that just a static bass line? And the answer is yes and no. Tony is keeping time in this very assorted way on the drums due to the pre-written bass line that Wayne wrote specifically for that tune. But the 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 thing that's really interesting is that at the end of each of the forms it's just like it, 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 I think it's probably just slashes at that point and it's given the bass player the the freedom to play whatever notes that they'd like on that turnaround before starting the form again and going back to that written bass line. So there's liberty there to hear the interplay between Ron and Tony. That's worth noting. Another thing that's worth noting is that this tune is not in your typical 4-4 time signature. It is in 6-4. And some people say it's in 3-4, but, you know, Six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. The point is, <clears throat> is that you get to hear this incredible assignment between Ron and Tony in that you have certain things that are relegated and written out, and then you have certain points of interplay and freedom. And that's a really tough assignment as well for a rhythm section player on bass and drums because you have to kind of switch and toggle back and forth and back and forth, all while keeping impeccable time and while giving the soloists the freedom to express themselves and providing a very tight-knit backdrop of rhythm and harmony in order to have the soloist feel free to express themselves. And then you add in all of Herbie Hancock's various voicings and rhythms on the piano, and that's a really tough assignment. So that's why I chose Footprints, is because Ron and Tony are part of the second great quintet by Miles Davis. <clears throat> and I would be remiss without mentioning that quintet and, I mean, you talk about five musicians, five stellar, legendary musicians that all shared one brain. There's been numerous anecdotes to try and put into words what this quintet did musically. Some people say it was um, playing tennis without a net. Other people said that it, it was like they were superheroes. I think Wayne said that they were flying every night. 
all five of them. They just sprouted wings and would go wherever. So, yeah. Uh, but at the core of that is the bass and drums. And that's kind of like the heartbeat of that whole living musical organism. And that would be Ron and Tony. So, yes, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, two of the greatest to ever do it. And I hope you enjoyed it. So, Before that, in the middle of the set, we heard the great Connie Kay on drums alongside bassist Percy Heath. And their group, the Modern Jazz Quartet. We heard Versailles from their Atlantic album, Fontessa. And it's worth noting that, yes, during the, the melody, there, there was like these little um, finger symbols going on between Connie Kay and uh, a walking bass line between Percy Heath. But <clears throat> to give you a full scope of what's kind of what, what was going on with that track, you had two kind of factions. You had Bags, Milt Jackson on, on the vibes, and John Lewis on the piano kind of weaving this interplay between the two of them. And then you had this kind of interplay between the bass and the drums between Percy Heath and Connie Kay. And then they have to make sure that they mesh and they match up. So group A, between the piano and the vibes, is doing their own little interplay and melody, and group B, with the bass and drums, is doing their own thing, and they have to make sure that they intersect and connect. And that is one of the reasons I chose this tune, Versailles, is that there's always more intricate things at play within a piece by the modern jazz quartet than what seem to be on the surface to the the casual listener. You can easily put something like the MJQ, Modern Jazz Quartet, on as background music and have like yourself a cocktail party or something like that. Everyone will probably comment, oh, what nice music. But that's the difference, and we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, that's the difference between passive listening and active listening. So if you're just passively putting on in the background, you won't notice all these things. But if you actively listen to what's going on, there's a lot of intricacies going on between uh, a lot of the compositions that John Lewis and, and all the members wrote for the Modern Jazz Quartet. So, But there's also that point in time where Connie Kaye starts riding on the cymbal, and it just absolutely is like a hand-in-glove moment with those walking bass lines by Percy Heath. So I think that's important to note as well, just to I mean, just to understand the the full breadth of uh, of the 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 sheer beauty and 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 hard work put in <clears throat> from these two musicians on bass and drums respectively. So yeah, uh, without going into you know a full you know analysis you know. That's kind of what I wanted to mention with that. So, the Modern Jazz Quartet, by far and large, one of the greatest quartets in modern jazz history. So, um, And then we started off the set with the Charles Mingus Quintet. And we heard Free Cell Block F, Tis Nazi USA, from his Atlantic album Changes 2, 
from 1975. And in that quintet is Jack Walrath on the piano on the trumpet, George Adams on the tenor saxophone, Don Pullen on the piano. And if you've heard of the Don Pullen George Adams group, then yes, this is where it all began. It was with Mingus. Uh, because Charles Mingus is on the bass and Danny Richmond is on the drums. Now, <clears throat> there's an ass- assorted number of pieces that I could have chosen between Mingus and Danny Richmond because they played together for decades. But the thing that's interesting to note here is on this particular composition by Charles Mingus, Free Cell Block F, Tiznazi USA. There's a lot of shifts that happen on, like you have to be able to turn on the drop of a dime, on the head of a dime. Like, so there's this kind of like walking, shuffling sort of thing going on. And then it goes into this like samba, like Latin rhythms sort of thing, a la bossa nova. And then it goes back and then it goes back. And then there's this kind of, climactic build-up. So it's kind of got this stutter step going on as well. And for those three different kind of stylistic things to happen and without it skipping a beat, it's like they're almost, Mingus and Danny Richmond, that is, they're almost taking musical breaths at the same time. It's like they're so in sync that they're musically breathing together. That doesn't happen overnight. That is something that was well-crafted and developed and nurtured and polished between Mingus and Danny Richmond. And furthermore, I think it's safe to say, uh, I just finished this great book by John F. Goodman. No, not John Goodman, but John F. Goodman. Um, the author called Mingus Speaks, and it, it it's really an insightful read. Everyone should read it. But it's worth noting that Danny Richmond was a horn player, and Mingus actually coerced him to start and take up the drum kit. And of course, Danny Richmond was like, "I don't know anything about playing drums, Mingus." You know, blah, 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 you know. But Mingus like, no, 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 man. You've got you've got rhythm. You've got natural rhythm. So he coerced him to play the drums, and he tutored him. He he taught him how to play the drums very early on, like one of the the, the first sessions they ever had together. And from that point on, they were inseparable for the longest time. So, and and of course they were also you know partners in crime together too. They would go down to Tijuana together and and you know raise all sorts of hell. But that's a different story for a different day. The point is, <clears throat> is that they they hung out together. Mingus was more than just a, a musical partner to Danny Richmond. He was also like um, a mentor and taught him drums and basically shaped his whole musical career with that move. And of course, Danny Richmond went on to, you know, celebrate Mingus's legacy after Mingus passed away. He was also in the George Pullen Don Adams group that had some very fantastic albums. 
uh, to their own credit after Mingus passed away. But it's safe to say that Danny Richmond owes his musical credits and his you know fame to Charles Mingus seeing his potential as a drummer rather than a horn player and then nurturing that skill and then continuing to not just set him free but to I mean it that they, they were a inseparable duo for the longest time so for decades <clears throat> and it allowed don't, don't I don't want to make this sound like it's all Mingus being great and Danny Richmond being grateful uh, because it also very shrewdly allowed Mingus to have a drummer who understood his compositional processes and was able to switch with him on the drop of a dime to any of these kind of shifting stylistic things such as we heard here in this piece. So, there you go. That dynamic duo was forged and created by what Mingus heard with his own discerning ear and his patience to teach Danny Richmond drums. So, there you go. All right. Don't forget, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, TuneIn, Podbean, etc. So if you know somebody who would dig this kind of podcast, please make sure you pass on the word to them. Also, if you want to find out all of these tracks <coughs> and the artists and the album artwork, we've already done all that work for you. All you have to do is go to our website. That's Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast dot WordPress dot com. And there you can find out all the info in the order in which we play it for each episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Also, at the top of the, the, that page on our website is a little button that says Contact. You click that, and it will take you to a separate page with an empty box that you can craft your own email and hit Send, and it will go directly to us, and we'd love to hear from you, and we will write you back. So let us know what you think about this Dynamic Duo episode and or any of our other episodes. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much for listening and le- allowing us to be a part of your day or your evening Uh, We're nothing without you, so we do really appreciate you. We've got one more great set of music coming up for you in this dynamic duo episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast featuring the great dynamic duos of jazz bassists and drummers. So don't go anywhere. We've got one more great set. It's bound to please. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
All right. Three fantastic tracks right there. That's right. So we started off with Work Song, tuned by Nat Adderley, featuring the Cannonball Adderley Sextet. Cannonball on the alto, Nat Adderley on the cornet, Youssef Latif on tenor saxophone, flute, nobo, the great Joe Zavinol on piano, and our dynamic duo, Sam Jones on the bass, and Louis Hayes, one of the funkiest drummers on the planet, on drums. Yes, yes, yes. This comes from the album Live in Europe, Cannonball in Europe from 1962, and that was Work Song. And you got to hear just what is, is such a dynamic duo between Sam Jones and Lewis Hayes in not only providing groove, but the perfect backdrop and support system for each one of the soloists. Just fantastic. And then we ended with two of the greatest groups in all of recorded jazz history. Then the middle track there we heard was Lonnie's Lament, written by John Coltrane and featuring the John Coltrane Quartet, the classic quartet. John Coltrane on the tenor saxophone, McCoy Tyner on the piano, and the dynamic duo of Jimmy Garrison on the bass and Elvin Jones on drums. There's a particular thing on there right after the, the melody where Elvin's just hitting the cymbal one stick hit at a time. And the bass is exactly in sync with him. Jimmy Garrison is right there with Elvin every step of the way, like they're breathing simultaneously in tandem together. Because each note of the bass coincides with each cymbal strike. And it's just, it's glorious what the whole quartet can do because the whole quartet truly shared a brain. But specifically on that track, I just love the interplay between Elvin and Jimmy. Usually Elvin is known to be on a duo level with Train between a lot of the sax and drum thing, but there I love that track and I love that that interplay between Jimmy Garrison on the bass and Elvin Jones on the drums. And then we ended with probably one of the greatest well-known worldwide jazz tunes ever, and that is Miles Davis's So What off of his landmark album from 1959, Kind of Blue, featuring the dynamic duo of Jimmy Cobb on the drums and Mr. PC himself, Paul Chambers, on the bass. Of course, Paul Chambers has the written melody with that intro bass line. But that's not what makes this a dynamic duo. What makes this a dynamic duo between Cobb and Chambers is when the solos start coming in, and God knows they're iconic solos. There's people who can hum every note of those solos, and I'm one of them. But it's the the, the actual groove and the walking that Paul Chambers does, <clears throat> and the actual support system with the accents on on the ride cymbal and all the percussion that Jimmy Cobb is giving that makes this a ex- perfect example of a dynamic duo. Of course, the great soloists on this track was Miles Davis on the trumpet, John Coltrane on the tenor saxophone, Cannonball Adderley on the alto saxophone, and Bill Evans on the piano. All right, that concludes our dynamic duo episode here of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're nothing without you. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We do too. Uh, we, we love having you listen, and we love having you on board. So uh, in the famous words of Duke Ellington, you are all beautiful. You are all wonderful. You are all gracious, and we do love you madly. And so, 
Until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust.